Hello, humans. Thank you for listening to episode number six of the Fans First podcast. I appreciate your time and attention. My name is Scott Bertie, and this show is dedicated to featuring leaders in business, sports, and media who started out as fans first. We, w- we talk to award-winning entrepreneurs, professional athletes, high performers in business, and expert marketers in digital or social media about their life, along with the habits, tactics, and strategies that help guide them to where they are now. Episode six is a special one and features David Merriman Scott, the co-author of a new book called Fanocracy. And that is why it's such a special episode. The pure alignment, which initially led to the introduction between his new book, Fanocracy, and our business, TrueFan, just cannot be denied. It was fascinating to see how much David understood what we were striving to do at TrueFan after we were first introduced. And I was really, really excited to sit down with him and get a fresh take on why this book should be read by so many of brands that are out there, and especially brand marketers, because I think the way he speaks about fans and building a fanocracy as a brand will present a ton of opportunities to many, many brand marketers and digital marketers out there in this age of digital marketing. Now, more than that, I do want to add, before we start this episode, if there is something that you take away or that you really agree with, something that David says, something that I say, whatever it is, we talk a lot about fans during this episode. And because David just launched the new book with his co-author, his young daughter, we are going to give away a couple copies. So if there is that moment in the podcast that you want to share, please screenshot the episode, share it in a story on Instagram and tag me so that I know you shared it and that we can enter you into a draw to win one of two copies of Fanocracy. All right. Now, further to David, he spotted real-time marketing revolution in its infancy and wrote five books about it, including the new rules of marketing and PR with more than 400,000 copies sold in English and available in 29 languages from Albanian to Vietnamese. He's a seasoned author, let's put it that way, and a best-selling one. Now, David says the pendulum has swung far too far in the direction of superficial online communications. Tech-wary and bot-wary people are hungry for true human connection. Organizations have learned to win by developing what David calls a fanocracy, tapping into the mindset that fosters relationships with customers are more important than the products they sell to them. What a revelation. He is a massive live music fan, having been to over 790 live shows since he was 15 years old. You'll hear about that in the episode. Is a passionate about the Apollo Lunar program, and he loves to surf, but isn't very good at it. That makes two of us, David. No worries there. One really cool thing about David, too, that I learned is he's been an advisor for what will be a unicorn company, actually, HubSpot, since its inception and knows the CEO and founder there quite well. So without further ado, here it is. Episode number six of the Fans First podcast with business legend David Merriman Scott. All right, it's Scott here, and I am with a very special guest who I was connected to thanks to the one and the only Tyler Culbertson after our podcast. But he's recently written and actually come out with a book called Fanocracy. Uh, His name is David Merriman Scott. And many of you will probably know him as a former bestselling author and a speaker at many uh, conferences and very well-known businesses around North America and probably the world. So welcome, David, and thank you for making the time today. Thank you, Scott. Of course, happy to be here. Love the fact that the ideas of my book are totally aligned with what you guys are doing. Yes, absolutely. And that brings up really the core reason why he's going to be such a special guest. I felt, um, well, I think Tyler actually recognized very early on that there is 
a pretty high synergy between what we're speaking to clients about every single day and in terms of the natural kind of proxy when you're using fan as that word to describe interest um, and your book, Fanocracy. So you wrote the book and that's what really brought us together initially. I want to mention right at the start of the podcast that for one of the people who shares this podcast in their story, tagging David and myself on Instagram, we will be giving away one of the copies of his book to one of those people who share it. So if you're Ooh, listening to this exciting. episode, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're listening to this episode and you're enjoying the takeaways or some of David's experiences that he's going to be sharing, um, please do tag us on Instagram and that hashtag fans first and we will reach out to potentially you as a winner of the Fanocracy book. So I guess just starting out as, as your career as a writer, um, you've written several books before. As I mentioned, you're a best-selling author, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. I've had um, actually three books are international bestsellers. Um, the New Rules of Marketing and PR, which orig- originally came out in 2007 and was six months on the Business Week bestseller list. Um, that's now in the sixth edition, and it's published in 29 languages from Albanian to Vietnamese, which is always remarkable to me. Um, my book, um, Real-Time Marketing and PR, is, um, was number two on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, and a book wow. I wrote called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, um, interestingly was a, be- I was a huge bestseller in Japan <laughs> and, and ironically, because the Grateful Dead never played a single concert in Japan. So go figure, right? Wow. <laughs> Just so it goes to show what good marketing that that'll be recognized as great marketing, wherever it may be. Yeah. Um, well, very cool. I'm going to link those additional books in the show notes so that if listeners want to find them, they can do so, uh, download them on Audible or go into the local bookstores to purchase them. But when it comes to fanocracy, um, it's basically about how passionate fans can be the most powerful marketing force in the world, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And this, the idea for this book came about five years ago because I was thinking that the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications at a time when people are hungry for true human connections. So what I was thinking about superficial online communications, companies are doubling down on the digital channel. They're sending yet another email to their list trying to sell something. They're sending yet another social um, connection. They're always trying to sell. In some cases, you don't even know whether the person you're communicating with on the social networks is a robot. You know, even the social networks (laughs) themselves are feeding polarization. So um, I've just spoken with a whole bunch of people who are kind of you know, a little bit um, discouraged about the dark place that that so much of our online world has become, never mind the political side, which is really, Oof. really polarized. Uh, but at the same time, I recognized that I'm a massive fan of some things. I, I mean, I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts. I've been to 780 live shows in my life, starting when I was 15 years old. And I, and wow. I keep a spreadsheet of them. And I was talking to my daughter, Reiko, about this. She's now 26, so she was 21 at the time. And she started to talk to me about how much she's into Harry Potter. You know, she's she's not only read every book multiple times, seen every movie multiple times, but she's also... Um, I'd uh, gone to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando several times, went to the studio, movie studio in the UK, and she wrote a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. And she put that on a fan fiction site and it's been downloaded thousands of times and commented on hundreds of times. So we recognize on one hand, the, the, the digital world is cold and dark and polarizing for many people at the same time. We've got these incredible connections with other people because of the things that we're a fan of. So what we did was we dug in, decided to write the book together, dug in, researched it, and learned that any organization can build fans, even technology companies, enterprise software companies, car insurance companies. You know, it doesn't matter. Any organization can build fans. Wow. Love that. Um, clearly, you've, you've 
spoke about what kind of drove you to write that book with a few other people because it was so well said and polished. Um, and I guess <laughs> you, you brought up your co-author and that's as well your daughter is what you just mentioned. Yeah, Reiko, Reiko is my Reiko. Reiko is my Reiko. daughter. And what's cool about working with her is that she brings so many things to our writing partnership that enhance what I do. So, um, you know, obviously we're different generations and she's my daughter and obviously we're different genders. Um, she, uh, my wife's Japanese and so my daughter's mixed race. And also she's a neuroscientist. She wow. graduated from Columbia University with a degree in neuroscience. And now she's in her final year of medical school. And starting in mid 2020, she's going to start her residency as an emergency room doctor. So she comes at the idea of fandom from the perspective of neuroscience, what's going on in our brains mm. when we become a fan of someone so or something. So it's cool because, I mean, I'm a, you know, a, a mid fifties white man <laughs> and Reiko is a millennial half Japanese woman. Um, we share different fandoms and, um, and she's coming at it from neuroscience. So we were a really fabulous white writing team from that perspective. Yeah. And it's always just generally great to bring multi perspectives to these sorts of subjects and discussions or topics, because naturally you just get down to more of the bottom of it. And, and really, you know, when she's thinking so deeply into kind of, um, the neuroscience aspect and, probably the psychology behind this type of stuff. And you can kind of pull a lot of things you talked about, your grateful dead experiences being into the hundreds um, or just your general kind of practitional uh, experience over the course of your business career um, together. So I'd imagine that the two of those things have really come together to create um, kind of a well-rounded perspective uh, or thought process that, that goes into this book. Um, I haven't read the whole thing. I read a, a portion of it um, as you were kind enough to send me an advanced copy you know, that I downloaded on Adobe Digital Editions. But eventually when I opened it back up to continue reading, it had left me and I had difficulty yes. reading the rest. But that's probably a good thing, I think, because it must well, be due to the safety of books and the IP, right? Yeah, because I, I gave you a copy prior to publication. And um, prior to publication, there's all sorts of, it, it doesn't come from me, it comes from the publisher, all sorts of Makes controls on how much you can read and, and whatnot. But anyway, the book is out, so um, soon you'll be getting a real a real live copy, which you can read. Yeah, we've got uh, several. Uh, or listen to listen to in the audiobook version. We both, um, both Reiko and I recorded the audio. Uh, and of course, it's available in ebook format as well. Oh, brilliant. Nice. I, I enjoy uh, reading or listening to ebooks. Um, find it a little bit more convenient just while on the go, uh, the natural things that you get into in the day to day. But what I was going to mention is hey, one, congrats to you as a father of Rico, and congrats to her. It sounds like she's doing brilliantly aside from the book, um, kind of going into her you know, the actual residency, um, portion of, I guess that's the last little bit of the education that you received. Yeah. Um, it's another four years. Yeah, massive, but, <laughs> but it's probably the most serious be, time because you're actually, she's going to be in her thirties when she finally wow. finishes school, which is kind of remarkable, but an incredible um, amount of dedication. You know, she, um, she, she discovered something really cool, um, around what, what, a concept called narrative medicine. So um, narrative medicine uh, started in, at Columbia University and my daughter learned, learned narrative medicine there and she actually now teaches it at Boston University. The idea of narrative medicine is that you understand the entire patient, the whole patient as a person rather than just their symptoms. And therefore you come up with a different way to treat the patient's illness rather than just what the symptoms would tell you. And I'll give you an example. She uh, spoke with um, a patient um, who we call Jeremy, it's pseudonym. And Jeremy uh, was an older gentleman in his 80s and suffering from a blood cancer. And Jeremy, um, Jeremy's symptoms would imply a certain course of treatment uh, in order to keep him alive as long as possible. But when Reiko sat down and spoke with him and learned his story, learned his narrative, learned about what makes him tick, what she learned is that Jeremy um, is an, an amateur artist and he's really, really fascinated by art. 
And um, he told Reiko that I don't want to just live. I want to be able to create my art. So I want my treatment to focus on allowing me to do my art as long as possible. And that was a, an eye-opening kind of concept for both of us because we recognize that if you understand the story of your fans, either individually or collectively, you're much more likely to create products and services, or in this case, have a health come out, a healthcare outcome mm-hmm. that's going to be more suited to them. Um, yet most organizations sort of just do a cookie cutter. Here's our product, take it or leave it. Um, so the idea of building fans, there's all, all sorts of different ways to go about it. And, um, um, and we loved digging into, I mean, we dug in deep <laughs> to the details of how to create fans. Um, you know, there's, there actually are different prescriptions for how to do it well. Yeah, I noticed that in some of just the reviews so far of the book from early readers and uh, even just as you kind of described the book, it, it seems like you really took a, you know, gave people a tactful approach, not only if they can implement if they're in the traditional B2C type businesses and, you know, especially nowadays direct to consumer, but as well as B2B businesses, which are a little bit more maybe untraditional, the thought process of um creating an environment of fans amongst your you know, community or your consumers um, and even nonprofits and things of that nature too. So for whoever's listening to this episode, uh, you, you'll have some takeaways that you can apply to you know, the business that you're a part of um, or one that you want to make happen in the future. Um, and, and, I, and one of, the, one of my favorite examples of that, um, Scott, is um, pe- people always say to me, David, but I can't build fans because I'm a... And then you can fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. They say they're a doctor, they're a dentist, they're an enterprise software company. Um, they're, they sell a commodity product. They sell a virtual product. I mean, there's always, everyone has an excuse for why they can't build fans. But we found examples of fandom in all kinds of different companies. And one of my favorite examples is auto insurance. <laughs> and I find this to be such a fascinating example that I actually start my live presentations now um, by, um, I walk onto the stage. I don't say good morning. I don't say, uh, thank you very much for having me. I look in the audience, I pause and I say, who loves to buy auto insurance? <laughs> and a few people giggle, but mostly there's dead silence. Nobody likes to buy auto insurance. It's terrible. <laughs> Um, not only is it no fun to buy auto insurance, nobody wants to use the product because it meant you crashed your car. (laughs) So, um, then I say, uh, somebody told me insurance sucks. Nobody likes to buy insurance. It's not fun. And I reveal the person who told me that is McKeel Haggerty. He's the CEO of Haggerty insurance an auto company, auto insurance company. So, um, what McKeel Haggerty told me is we couldn't Uh, sell our product the same way everybody else does. We had to do something different. And what we decided to do was build fans. And so Haggerty sells classic car insurance. They've actually become the largest classic car auto insurance company in the world. And so what what they've done for years is, of course, not just McKeel Haggerty, but his people, they go to classic car events around North America. And they uh, set up a booth and they provide education, um, seminars and all sorts of, of things for fans of classic cars who are going to these events. Um, they have valuation reports that they offer online, which helps um, using their data to track the value of different classic cars so you can get a sense of what yours is worth and how it's changed over time. Uh, they have a YouTube channel with over a million subscribers or or nearly a million subscribers, which is remarkable. They're an auto insurance company. Um, and they've had double digit compound growth every year. Um, they'll grow by 200,000 new customers this year. And I'm actually a customer. I have a 1973 Land Rover that has been insured by Haggerty since 2005. And when I got my renewal a couple of months ago, um, I, I was, I was happy to pay it. I won't look around for a cheaper alternative. Hmm. I'm happy to pay it because I'm a fan. I'm a fan of my auto insurance company. So we've, we've learned just from speaking with hundreds of people and, and many dozens of, comp- of companies that any organization can build fans, even in a category everybody hates, auto insurance. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you, you bring up a really interesting point. I mean, I'm sure we could almost just dive into that conversation in itself and, and go an hour through this podcast. But it does make me think of the ones that you initially brought up as well, like uh, doctors, you know, maybe kind of more health related um, businesses, especially when they're private. And, you know, one of the first things that comes up in my name when I think, or my head when I think about doctors is kind of natural versus uh, more kind of like medicated or the typical uh, medicines that they'd be treated with. How like somebody who's into natural medicines or natural forms of therapy um, and fixing may find themselves more aligned and kind of may become passionate about a doctor that prescribes or uh, lends itself more to that type of treatment, right? Like, would you say that's a fair way to kind of group fandom in that type of industry? I think that the idea of who you're actually um, serving um, is a great way to build fans and who are the people that, um, that you are most likely to be able to, to help. Uh, and rather than just trying to say, we work with everybody, you know, we're, we're a doctor, come to us. Um, or we're a car insurance company, come to us. The idea that Haggerty is just classic cars or that some healthcare providers are special t- specialists or the type of medic, uh, tr- type of treatment that mm-hmm. they offer, maybe, maybe cannabis related, for example, is very, very specific. Um, then it's much more likely that you can grow fans. Um, I'll give you an example, actually. Um, there's a dentist that we spoke with. His name is Dr. John Marashi. He's a dentist in Southern California. And he realized that there are literally tens of thousands of dentists in Southern California. And you're not going to be able to break through just by buying a larger advertisement or um, making a nicer office or, 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 or whatever. You're going to have to do something different if you want to drive fans as a dentist. So what he realized is that many people in Southern California live a healthy lifestyle. And he happens to be a skateboarder. He's actually a good skateboarder. So what he recognized is that if he's able to show his passions for skateboarding, his fandom around skateboarding, that he's much more likely to have people gravitate to him because they recognize that he's similar to they are. You know, um, maybe they're a surfer or maybe they love to mountain bike or, or, or maybe they just like to hike in the woods. But this is a fellow enthusiast of the healthy outdoor lifestyle. And so um, on his Instagram, he actually shows lots of different photos of him um, uh, in the outdoors skateboarding. Hmm. <laughs> He's the skateboarding dentist. And, um, and his Instagram, I mean, most dentists who have social media, um, and some do, you do a typical um, um, photographs of teeth before and after, dirty, crooked teeth turning into white, straight teeth. That's the ubiquitous approach that most dentists take to using social networks and on their website. Dr. Marashi is completely different. It's like he's on his skateboard mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and he's showing that, that, that he's really into that. And, um, and he told me that just by doing this, showcasing his passion, showcasing what he's a fan of, he's been able to grow his business by 30% just through Instagram. Wow. Um, and in the last year. And because he's not going after everyone in Southern California. He's going after people in Southern California who live a healthy lifestyle and would like to have a dentist who also does, um, which is kind of cool as a way to differentiate. A hundred percent. And there's no reason to say that there's not a big enough market of skateboarders in Southern Cal to make a successful dentist um, business or practitioner um, come to fruition. You know what I mean? I think that that's, that's likely a market that could be split up, you know, five, six, 20 times over in that region. And you could still run a a successful practice through that. That's a really interesting example. I think a lot of listeners will think about that. Um, not even relating it to maybe how you can align yourselves with the potential fans that you could attract to your business. Um, but thinking about it from a personal branding standpoint and how, you know, that kind of notion or, or that tactic can be used by dentists uh, in a channel 
may, which may not be synonymous with like attracting dentists customers. Um, right. And I think right. that's a really important and, and, point to make. No, please add on anything on it. You have. Well, what I was, what I was going to add is that we learned that an approach like this, where you're showcasing your passions, um, where other, where either you or other people in your organization, or if you work within a company, the, the executive team, whatever it is, but showcasing your passions, um, is incredibly effective because we learned that passion is infectious. So this idea that passion is infectious means that it's not, you don't have to focus on finding, in this case of Dr. Marashi, just skateboarding fans. Um, although maybe some skateboarding fans will want to be to have him be their dentist, his dent their dentist. But what it's more about is that because he's showing he's passionate for something in his life, sharing that with the world, that in itself attracts people. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I mentioned I'm a fan of a grateful of the Grateful Dead. I'm not just doing that because I want to um, find other Grateful Dead fans. It's more general than that. I want. I want people to say, oh, like he loves the Grateful Dead. That's cool. I'm not really into the Grateful Dead, but I am into um, Fish or the Rolling Stones or whatever, whatever band. So I have a feel, I have a, a kindred spirit in this guy. Or even, you know, I'm not into, into rock music, but I can appreciate that this guy loves, the, loves to go to, to live music. I can, I can appreciate that. I'm not into that, but I'm into sports and I love to go see my local sports team play wherever that happens to be. So um, um, we learned by speaking with a number of CEOs that this idea of passion is a really important thing to hire for in their companies because um, passion is infectious. I had one person who told me that it's so important that they make the idea of interviewing for passion part of the process of working for her company. Mm -hmm. And she asks a number of questions during the interview, but um, one of the, the most important questions she asks is this. If you were in a room of 2000 people, what could you confidently say you were the best at? And the answer to that question shows what, what that interviewee is passionate about. And that indicates um, whether that person is likely to be an employee who it brings passion to work and radiates passion to potential customers, even if the thing they're passionate about has nothing to do with the business. Um, and just like Dr. Marashi, skateboarding has nothing to do with dentistry, but the fact that he's passionate drives people to his business. So that's what we learned. You know, being a fan of something, anything is incredibly powerful because it shows that you've got passion. And I think in speaking with, with literally hundreds of people around the world, what we learned is that a lot of people are unwilling to share what they're a fan of. They're, they, they feel like in the business world, they have to hide the things that they love. But what we learned is that the more you show the things that you love, the more people you attract and the more it helps your business. Yeah, yeah. You, you really bring so much to mind every time you speak about kind of one of these experiences or, you know, the subjects that you've kind of spoken to, I guess, about this over the course of time. Um, it's a couple things that you just brought up there that you make me think about. One is authenticity and how that term gets used a fair bit. And I think, you know, kind of layering that onto being a human and people often wanting to buy from other humans um, or look at you more as a human, right. Uh, than as a business that if, if they're interested in a potential buyer, um, that, what you kept making me think throughout that explanation was they really seem more human. There's, there's a human element to that. And I think that that is what really can cut through, um, and start to slowly break down any barriers, um, due to the understanding of the passion that you have as a human and how the fact, the fact that you want to express those things. And then even as it relates, I think to influencer marketing, it's, it's kind of clear why that, strategy is taking a slight dip in terms of its effectiveness right now for a lot of the bigger brands and even smaller ones, because 
I think many of them um, have started to notice that the consumers are a little weary of influencer fatigue and the fact that there wasn't much alignment um, between some of the brands that were paying influencers to post and the influencer's image as a whole, like the, the kind of person that they had shown their network to be. Um, and so now as you start to align closer with the right types of influencers or the you know public figures that have a level of passion, which matches that, uh, of your purpose as a brand, I think that's really where the magic happens, um, and where the success happens as it relates to employing that as a tactic. Now I want to get back to that, but I do want to, and actually I, I, I just, I want to mention that you're absolutely right. We have a chapter in the book on influencer marketing and, um, I, we titled that chapter, Be Smart About Your Influencers, because uh, we did talk to a number of organizations who work with influencers, and we spoke with a number of people uh, about their experience with influencer marketing. And you're absolutely right. You know, just hiring a Kardashian to talk about your stuff isn't effective. But if, if you get somebody who is truly a fan of what you do, if you're able to have that person share the fact that they're a fan, that's incredibly powerful. And in fact, um, you mentioned our mutual friend, Tyler Culbertson. Tyler's actually, um, we interviewed Tyler and he's uh, been quoted in the book because he's done a very good job at, at understanding how to use influencers in a really positive way um, around um some of the brands that he's worked with, for example, Ruka. And, uh, and so it's not just a matter of paying someone to say something. Um, people see through that, but, uh, if they're truly passionate about a product or a service or an idea or a brand, those influencers are really powerful. And mm-hmm. I think your platform is, does a good job at helping to understand who is the real true influencers and then how can you work with them? Yeah, well, appreciate that plug. Um, so I guess before we dive a little deeper into some of the areas of the book, um, and, and I'm really curious to have a quick conversation around this idea of kind of like how passion will slowly match the right people up uh, with purpose-driven brands. But you as a human, um, you've had a really interesting career thus far as I understand it. And I don't know too, too much, but how and when did your time as a fan begin? And that could be, you know, as a fan of writing um, or even sales and marketing and even previous to what you did um, as part of your career, you know, as you were still kind of a, you know, a teen or coming into school. Yeah. So that, well, the first time I really had a, a conscious feeling of being a fan, a real true fan um, was as a teenager. Um, I went to my first rock concert when I was 15. My buddies and I lived in Connecticut. My buddies and I got on the train. We went to New York City, Madison Square Garden, and Aerosmith was the first show we saw. And then um, what was really cool was the second show I saw, which was way more epic. Um, the Ramones played my high school. Wow. Um, so yeah, the first two shows you saw live? Yeah, those are the first two shows I saw live. And I've seen some amazing shows. Um, Led Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden, for example. The Clash, I've seen. Uh, um, uh, My claim to fame, though, is... um, I was the only person who had a who is known to have shot photos at Bob Marley's last concert. Um, it was um, September 23, 1980. I was 19 years old, and uh, it was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at Stanley Theater. And my buddies and I went. We were in college at the time, and we drove four hours from where I went to school in Ohio to, to Pittsburgh. And I brought uh, a, my friend's good camera, shot a roll of film, and. Um, you know, kind of really didn't think much of it. But then um, a year later, he was dead. And it wasn't until about 30 years after that, that I realized that there were no known photos of this show. And I said, well, darn, I have them. (laughs) And, um, and those photos now have become real well known. They're used. um, uh, There's a, a, a documentary called Marley that came out a few years ago. And um, I worked with the producer of the film and um, uh, my photos uh, are about five minutes of that documentary because his last concert was really important. It was the only show he did where he knew he was dying of brain cancer. 
The show prior to that was the day before at Madison Square Garden in New York. He didn't feel good after the show, went to the doctor early in the morning in New York. They said, you're dying of brain cancer. And then he took a bus to the Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh, did one more show, and then decided to retire and go for treatment. Um, And so, damn, I'm a fan, man. I'm a fan of live music. 780 shows. I have a spreadsheet of all the bands I've seen. Um, and, um, And I think... Many of us are fans of, in that kind of strong sense. And it was really important to me as a fan to dig in deep to this idea of fandom and understand exactly what's going on. And, and you know, we, looked at, we even looked at what's going on in our brains, the neuroscience aspect of fandom. So fascinating. I mean... I'm glad that you did jump this deep into looking into, you know, what that means because <laughs> you're a leader in business. And so it's often, it takes a little bit of breaking down, I think, to technically apply some of these terms that are thought of a little bit more broadly, just based off of the perspective that we have as humans um, and apply them down to, you know, businesses or, or how you can sell more as a business in many different industries. Um looking at this as, you know, a strategy you can apply to your business. And as you talk about it being a marketing strategy, you mentioned in the book how it's inspiring and nurturing true fans that will help build passion for their, for their brands. Can you explain that a little bit to listeners, that part about inspiring and nurturing true fans? Sure. True fans. How about that? What an ironic uh, (laughs) two words put together, right? (laughs) Um, So, you know, we, as I mentioned, we spent five years researching this um, and we dug in deep. We talked to lots of people. If I'm, if I were to boil down five years of research from two people, my daughter and I, to one sentence, What we learned is that fandom is about a true human connection. It's about actual people. So, for example, I mentioned, um, we just spoke about, I love live music, 780 live shows, 75 Grateful Dead shows. What's most important about that is I'm going to live shows with, with people who are like me, my friends. I've got friends that I started going to shows with when I was 15 years old. It's 40 years later, and we're still going to shows together. That's, that's a, a, a human connection, a bond with like-minded people. We, we, we're part of a tribe. We share the same lingo. And it doesn't matter what you're a fan of. That's true. With my daughter with Harry Potter, same thing is true. And so we interviewed some neuroscientists to know what's going on in our brains when that's happening. And it turns out that hardwired into our brains as humans is this idea that the closer you get to someone, the more powerful the the shared emotions. And that's true of fandom. So um, there's a neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall who did some pioneering work on proximity. So how close is one human being to another human being? And further than 20 feet is called um, public space. Our brains don't track people who are in our public space, who are further than 20 feet away. We know they're there, but we don't really worry about them in our ancient brains, our DNA. But once they get within approximately 20 feet, we begin to track them. So if you walk into a room and there's people in that room and, you're, and they're within about 20 feet of you, you begin to track them. You can't help it. That's, that is your ancient brain fight or flight instinct taking over, wondering if those people who are in the room with you are dangerous. And for that reason, if you know those people and you trust them, they're people who you already know, or you're part of the same tribe, Grateful Dead fans, Mm -hmm. for example, then those are very positive um, human emotions. But if you get into a crowded elevator you don't know those people, your brain says, danger, danger, I might need to fight, I might need to run away. And especially in a crowded elevator, the door closes, you get nervous. Mm -hmm. You can't help that because it's your ancient brain taking over. So what this means for developing fans is, can you put your yourself and your employees together in close proximity within approximately 
20 feet. And there's yet another zone, which is called um, personal space. That's within about four feet. That's cocktail party distance. Those are where the most powerful emotions are shared. When you're together with somebody within four feet, that's typically sort of cocktail party distance. Um, And so can you put yourself in close physical proximity with your customers or potential customers or Put your customers in proximity with each other, like, for example, doing a client conference or something like that. But it gets even more interesting um, with a concept called mirror neurons, another concept from neuroscientists, because some people say to me, but David, I can't do that. I run a virtual business or I run a global business. I can't get together with people who are all over the world. Well, it turns out that this idea of, of mirror neurons is when you do something, your brain fires. However, when you see somebody do something, your brain fires as if you were doing it yourself. Uh, Let me demonstrate that verbally. I'm now going to take a bite of a lemon. And as I take that bite, my eyes instinctively close. My mouth puckers up. It's a really powerful sensation, that tart lemon that I've taken a bite of. My saliva glands start to do their thing. And... If you had seen me take that bite of lemon, your saliva glands might be doing their thing too. And in fact, even by just hearing me say that, you might be tasting a little bit of lemon. That's from the power of mirror neurons. Now, what that means is the more you can use photographs and video of people in personal space or social space, within 20 feet or even better yet, within four feet, the more likely you are to develop that shared human emotion, positive shared human emotion I was talking about earlier. That's why when you see um, somebody on a movie screen uh, or a television screen, the movie stars or television stars, you feel you know them. You don't know them. They're an image on a screen. But your brain kicks in and the mirror neurons fire as if you know those people personally because those images are in your personal space and social space. What that means is in your websites or on your social media, if you want to build fans, showing photographs of you, of your customers, of your partners, cropped as if they were in, their, in the personal space sort of four feet away, or using video cropped as if it's in personal space, four feet or so, looking directly at the camera. This also actually explains the selfie phenomenon because a selfie, by definition, our arms are less than four feet Mm. long, most of us. When you take that selfie, you're looking at the camera. There may even be another person in the photograph. They're both looking at the camera. That's a powerful connection with other people. That's why for many of us on social networks, selfies get more traction, more likes, more shares than, um, than, than other typical pictures. So these are all ways that any one of us listening in on this can develop fans, true fans, again, to use that, that pun. <laughs> we can develop true fans by getting people in close physical proximity with one another and sharing images as if they were in close physical proximity using the magic of mirror neurons. Fascinating. If you were paying attention... It is, it is. If you were paying attention before at the start of the episode um, where you brought up uh, basically the insurance company um, who insures uh, classic cars and you spoke about how they make an effort to go out to this big trade show, um, getting close and personal, not to sell necessarily to consumers, but I think that is the process of nurturing um, and then helping inspire and nurture in other ways with those kind of ancillary products that I think you had mentioned like where they, they have a little platform that will help, uh, car owners calculate the value of their classic car, because that is innately one of the interests linked to owning the car as it would be protecting that car. But that's kind of that one area that they're leading them towards. That's kind of that nurture effect through those other things that are bringing them closer. That's super fascinating. Exactly right. Because once you're a fan of Haggerty in that, in, that, mm-hmm. in that particular example, Haggerty Insurance, once you're a fan of Haggerty Insurance because you encounter them at that classic car show, the people, the actual people are physically there. And then, on their, then maybe you connect to their YouTube channel and you see the people on the YouTube channel. Naturally, when your mind goes to, well, gee, you know, I, maybe I should think about insuring with them. 
I'm already a fan. Uh, it's just a natural transaction. And then, like I mentioned earlier, when you have to re-up after a year, like I had to recently, I'm happy to do that because I like these people. You know, yeah, I'm happy absolutely. to do that. It can often be the pain point, actually, for a lot of businesses in that re- renewal phase where you have to ask for a little bit more money. Um, and typically insurance, you know, that they don't always ask for a little bit more money. They can uh, just tell. Yeah, exactly. They demand a little more <laughs> in that situation. Um, so I guess just getting back quickly to this idea, because you were talking about passion, and I think that was really linking back to this. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but there was a quote, um, and I'm not going to exactly quote it, but Unilever CEO spoke about the profitable brands for them being the purpose-driven brands, and those are the brands that they're going to stick mm. with through the mm-hmm. next decade, essentially. Um, and so... One of the quotes about your book, as somebody who is reviewing it, um, kind of talks about shining a light on the joy of growing a business when you're surrounded by customers who positively love what you do, which is, I I think people can probably draw that picture up to this point. Um, And there's another quote by Tony Robbins that says, fanocracy also explores the thinking of a new generation, one that values community and sharing. Again, I think you just kind of bridged on that perfectly, talking about the different um, proximities you can kind of have with either your audience um, or a person in front of you, kind of comparing that from social media to an in-person experience. Do you think that you know, what the, the kind of strategy that you're speaking of as an overarching term, like fanocracy and creating a fanocracy is really one of the number one factors that leads to word of mouth. Because I, I kind of come to think now about, you know, Chipotle or brands like that, that on social media um, are essentially fueling that fire with great forms of content. Um, and those brands are flourishing, Uh by the connection that they've created with their consumer base, because they're such a fan of either the service or the product that they offer that they can just fuel that kind of fanship. Is that safe to say that word of mouth is innately one of the biggest benefits? Oh, I think so. I think, I think it's word of mouth becomes really important. I think that, um, as we mentioned just a minute ago, you're more likely to buy more from that company, or if it's a subscription type product, like the, the car insurance example, you're more likely to re-up for the next year. And, um, and also, once you get that machine in gear, you don't have to constantly pay mm-hmm. for advertising. You know, there's a lot of companies, you know, they're, they're just... Um, doing business on a transaction basis. It's like, you know, work, 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 work in order to try to get some new customers. And then once they have those customers, they have to work, work, work more to, to get more customers. But if you build what I call a fanocracy or build, a, build an infrastructure where fans rule, um, people will share your ideas and they'll be eager to be a part of what you're doing. Um, and we have a number of examples of that, but one I'd like to cite is a company called HubSpot. They're a, a marketing um, and sales and customer support automation service uh, software. And I, um, I've been on the advisory board of HubSpot since the very beginning in 2007. And they've built a huge fan base. They have uh, millions of people uh, who visit their blogs, millions of people uh, who uh, are part of their uh, the content that they create. They get 25,000 people a year to their annual annual conference in, in the Boston area. Uh, and many of those people actually pay their own way to come to the conference. They want to be in, together with a tribe of like-minded people. And HubSpot has done a great, got, done a great job with building fans and it's been great for their business. Um, they started in 2006. I joined them uh, on the advisory board 2007. They've um, went public in 2014 on the New York Stock Exchange, and they're going to do $650 million in revenue in, uh, in 2019, um, which is fabulous. Um, and they base most much of that on nurturing and developing fans who then, as you say, want to share via word of mouth. Yeah, HubSpot's a really interesting example. In fact, that was actually going to be my next question. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, I know you have a a great history with them. It's amazing. As me me as an advocate to know somebody who's been on the advisory board since they got started, um, 
I haven't actually been to Inbound, but I can totally relate to wanting to go uh, and be kind of around that tribe, so to speak, uh, of very like-minded people and people that would (laughs) probably jive very interesting conversations with. Um, But I guess kind of getting back to that, the point of that question and then where you let in just speaking about how you'll start to sell to them more, you won't need to you know, be spending as much as you do on advertising and um, channels like that. Part of uh, the actual or salespeople, right? Cause a lot of, particularly, particularly with B2B, you know, like a lot of companies just, you know, it's just banging on doors, you know, sometimes even literally banging on doors, but more, more as a metaphor, um, you know, trying to get more people into your sales funnel, trying to get that down to the point where they close. That's hard work. But developing fans, once they are your fans, that's that becomes a, an amazing way to grow. Agreed. Business. And you, you actually have it in your, like the, the cover of the book has it saying, turning fans into customers and customers into fans. I mean, that's kind of that innate, part of our messaging that we speak about on a regular basis of turning the customer who only buys into the fan who advocates on social media, right? Like kind there, there's that other element of like, yes, you can turn fans into customers. That's part of it is generating that inbound, but also using your current customer base to create fans and create advocates out of them rather than just having them use your product. Have them tell their peers and their your potential customers right. about it and their experiences. Like I, I speak about HubSpot because of the fact that we were you know, kindly enough qualified into this HubSpot startup program that they have. And when I'm like, oh, nice, incredible program. program. I'll plug it right yeah. now. It's um, 90% off the professional suite of package or the professional package um, for the first year. So it's a $1,600 worth of software for 160 bucks a month for that first year. And it goes on to provide some deals after that, depending on the stage that you're then in on as a startup. But I guess the point um, is they've turned me into a fan of the platform because of the experience. And then through that, now when I'm hosting an event or something of that nature, where I feel like there's a reason to talk about them to the crowd out there, whether it be some young professionals or young entrepreneurs, um, or just kind of growing entrepreneurs and maybe the startup scene, they get that free promotion and that natural word of mouth from a very trusted source, as opposed to having to jam it down those people's throats with other means. So it, it's really great, such a great example. Exactly right. And here we are advocating for Literally. them, right? Both of us are. <laughs> Couldn't be going any better for HubSpot. <laughs> for HubSpot. Um, yeah. so, so you have a kind yeah. of powerful start to the book. Um, it speaks about strength through fandom. Can you go through a few of the first sections of this book? So just maybe like... Um, kind of hovering over why you started the book this way. And I know you're somebody who's from that kind of Boston, Massachusetts area. Um, and, and you use them as such a shining example of kind of how they united through the, th- uh, through the strength of fandom. Yeah, so I, I, I can. So um, we were looking at this idea of fandom and, um, and one, and my my daughter I, I actually I'll back up a little, uh, for a second um, in thinking about how we wrote the book. Uh, originally, we wrote the book um, in one voice. It was my it was a, a unified voice of Reiko, my daughter, and me. And we realized it wasn't working, so we had to actually blow up the whole book and essentially start again. And we decided to take. Um, different chapters. So she wrote some chapters and I wrote some chapters and we edited each other. We made sure it fit together nicely and as a whole, but it's way better when her voice comes through and my voice comes through. She's also <laughs> a better writer than I am. So I'm glad to have her voice out there. Um, but she um, came up with a fabulous example of this strength through fandom thing where um, we, we were, we were, she was thinking about the Boston mm-hmm. marathon bombing, which happened, um, I think it was four years ago as we were recording this. And, um, and it was a terrible time to live in Boston where we both live. And my daughter happened to be in New York city at the time she was going to school there. And, you know, everybody was talking about the marathon bombing and it was, it was, it was such a dark time for the city of Boston. And for a number of days, the city was in lockdown because um, Mm -hmm. they couldn't locate the bombers. 
Um, and at that time, the Boston Red Sox um, had to cancel and, and uh, lots of other things had to cancel their game games because the city was in lockdown. They weren't letting any people get onto the public transportation and so on. So um, so when they finally found the bombers and the lockdown was lifted, um, there was a Red Sox game that night and the city was still in a funk. <laughs> you know, it was like what the heck, you know, it's like people lost their lives. People were injured. The marathon was, um, you know, was, was destroyed and, and we were in a lockdown and, you know, the city was in a funk. So, um, the Red Sox game fandom, Red Sox, Boston Red Sox, um, turned out to be the catalyst to bring Boston back because that was the first time the city got together to celebrate essentially together after the bombing, this first Red Sox game. And David Ortiz came out and gave a short speech. And he said, this is our, he used a bad word. He said, this is our fucking city and you're not going to take it from us. Um, we're Boston, Boston mm -hmm. strong. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm not getting the exact words right. Um, and this little speech, it was only like two, two or three sentences. This little speech was the catalyst to bring the city back from this funk. And it was fandom. And you didn't even have to be a Red Sox fan because that was then everywhere. It was broadcast everywhere. It was in the newspapers, magazines, on television stations, social media. Everyone's talking about Ortiz's speech. Um, and, um, and, um, he was a big pappy as we call him was already beloved, yeah. but that made him even more beloved. And, and this idea of strength through fandom, we thought was very, very powerful. And that can be something that can happen for lots of different organizations that your fans can support you. And I'll give you another example. So let's say, you run a business and you make a mistake. Um, you know, I don't know, the software stops, stops working. Or uh, one of my favorite examples that we actually wrote about in the book was in the UK, the KFC restaurants ran out of chicken last year, <laughs> which is ridiculous, right? A, a chicken restaurant running out of chicken. And um, they could have blamed the logistics company because in fact it was a problem with with the logistics company the transportation company that delivered the chickens but kfc said we screwed up we're really sorry we're going to try to get this back as soon as we can they created a website um, that they were providing information on which restaurants in the uk had chicken and which didn't um, they were uh, all over their social media and their advocates their fans supported them because they were they already built the fan base they already built those advocates and then they were totally honest when they had a problem so it was strength through fandom it was a problem for them but the problem was overcome yeah, because of they had already built half the solution great example yeah um I, I guess given the fact that we only have about four or five minutes left here one of the things i really wanted to skim over given now that i know your experience with them is the grateful dead because i think they come up a little bit in the book as they should uh you kind of spoke yeah. about a, a use case or something that they've done um, to attract new fans and reach new fans, um, which was essentially giving away music. That's actually something uh, and a kind of general use yeah. case that you know some of our customers use the audience data for um, on the music and entertainment side. So can you speak a little bit more to what they did and that kind of case that worked really well for them? Sure. Of course. So Grateful Dead were um, the first band that allowed fans to record their music, record their concerts. And uh, and so every other band on the ticket, it said no, no recording allowed. The Grateful Dead said, sure, why not? And they even allowed you to bring uh, professional wow. level audio gear into the venue. Um, they provided, um, power strips. You could plug your professional level gear in and, um, they gave you a seat right behind the mixing board, which is the best place for the sound. And some people even brought, you know, like microphones on stands. I mean, it was 
big deal. And, and they've been doing this for thir- more than 30 years, 40 years, I think. And initially, um, people recorded on cassette tapes and they would trade those tapes. And then later on, of course, it became MP3 files. The Grateful Dead really only had run- one rule. Uh, and that was you can't sell the recordings. You can trade them with other people. You can give them away. And then that built a fan, huge fan base. That's how I learned about the Grateful Dead, because one of my friends was playing a, 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 back in my day was cassette tape uh, at his in his dorm room in college. And I was like, I, I love this. This is amazing. I want to go to Grateful Dead concerts now. And I've been to 75 <laughs> Grateful Dead concerts since then. So they monet- they monetized me in a big way. In fact, in early 2019, I went to Mexico for three days. I bought a package from the Grateful Dead, three days of Grateful Dead. Oh, it's actually called Dead and Company now that Jerry Garcia has passed away and John Mayer is playing the Jer- Jerry Garcia role. It's, it, the band is called Dead and Company, but it's, it's three of the original members. And um, I paid a lot of money, thousands of dollars. Um, to the band for three, uh, four nights in a hotel, food, um, drinks, and uh, three tickets for the three nights of the Grateful Dead show. And um, so they have completely monetized me. But what most bands do is say no recording allowed. And most companies do the same thing. They don't give away something. And what we learned is that to develop fans, giving away something with no expectation of anything in return is a fabulous way to build fans. I'll give you just one quick example of how this can work is, um, is white papers and eBooks. People often in the B2B world give away a white paper or an ebook, but they demand something in return, an email address and contact information. That's not a gift. That's coercion. So to build fans, it's better to give away that white paper completely and totally free with no registration required at all. Build the fan. And then within the white paper, you can have an offer of some kind that you can collect the email address, but the initial offering, just like the Grateful Dead is completely Well, I will let the marketers jot that one down and take that as a note to implement on their own time. But uh, I I completely agree. I I actually had a little note here to maybe talk with you about um, the idea of focus groups and even test groups. The fact that the ease of creation now using online audiences is so vast. The opportunity presents itself for pretty much any brand that has built an audience online at this point. Um, so it's almost surprising to me that more marketers aren't really capitalizing on the use of that, given that, you know, formally creating some sort of focus group or honest opinions about a project, a product, um, even just a song or something that you were testing in the market, um, was quite difficult and it was hard logistically to organize. It was also just a nightmare to try and find the right people. But now you have these fans and, you know, purpose-driven audiences who are readily waiting for those opportunities. So something I think that marketers will begin to capitalize more and more on, um, as they're aware of the need for one-to-one marketing. But I I know you got to jump here, David. So I'll, I'll kind of throw it back to your corner and leave you with a minute to address the listeners with any final comments. Yeah, sure. So when we went into the initial research of um, this book, which became Fanocracy, um, we weren't sure whether any organization can build fans. And And in digging in, there is no question that any organization, any company, any person, any idea can develop fans. You know, we talked about even in a product category, one hates insurance. Um, so fandom isn't just for entertainers anymore, entertainment anymore, although it's great for that. Fandom is for everybody. And one of my favorite examples is there's a government agency, government agency that has tens of millions of fans. People wear the t-shirts, people wear the hats, people put the stickers on the back of their computer. It's a government agency, NASA. NASA has a huge fan base and they're a government agency. My gosh, if, if a government agency can develop fans, anybody can develop fans. Um, so, um, Scott, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been really good fun. I love what you guys are doing. And I love the fact that, um, the ideas in this book yeah. are aligned with Couldn't agree ideas. more. Love that you wrote this book and can't wait to read the whole thing. And I look forward to collaborating and working with you a little bit more in the future. But um, for now, hope every listener really enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And reach out to David on social media. I will have his links in the show notes. Um, 
And yeah, that's it. Thanks so much, David. All the best. Thanks so much, Seth. Really, thanks, Scott. I really appreciate it. Cheers. You made it to the end. Awesome. And now that you're here, I want to remind you, we are giving away two copies of Fanocracy in conjunction with this episode. So if you haven't already, all you need to do to enter for a chance to win is screenshot the episode, share it on your Instagram to- story, tagging myself or true fans so we know that you shared it uh, with a little tidbit on why that part resonated so much, what part resonated, just sharing with your fans and your network why fanocracies could be important to them or their business. So if you've already done that, thank you. If you haven't, just go back to that point in the episode or just screenshot the episode and share the bit that really did resonate with you because I'm sure you're still thinking about it. And I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to Fans First today. If you enjoyed the episode, as always, please tell us, subscribe and leave a review. Or like I mentioned, you can always share on your Instagram story, this time with a chance to win one of two copies. Now, David will be linked in the show notes. I know he's quite active on LinkedIn. So if you want to reach out to him, that would probably be the best social platform. There's always Twitter too, though. Um, LinkedIn, it's David Merriman Scott. Merriman is M-E-E-R-M-A-N. So you can find him there. And you can always find me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter by searching Scott Bertie. This podcast is made possible by a true fan. And believe me, I'm grateful to be the beneficiary of this company podcast. Look up T-R-U-F-A-N on social media or the internet nearest you to learn more about our web platform and services. Services of which now include SocialRank, a secondary technology platform that we recently acquired to end 2019. So if you're curious to hear more about that or to learn more about that product, hit us up. If you have any questions regarding today's show or recommendations for future episodes, you can always send me a message on Instagram or a personalized connection request on LinkedIn. I always get back to the people who send me messages. And otherwise, it was great having you tune in to another show. I hope you enjoyed it and please come back for more again later. Later.